Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Well, if you've ever read a book or watched a movie, you've probably encountered what we call dramatic irony. Dramatic irony just means when you're watching or reading something, you, as the reader or the viewer, know more than the characters in the story. And it leads to them saying and doing things ironically, contrary to what you know to be true. It can be frustrating at times. So the man sees his date with another man, and she's friendly toward him, and he thinks she's not interested in me, and he begins to leave the restaurant. But you, the reader or watcher, you know that's her brother, but he doesn't know that. So you're saying, no, don't leave, but he doesn't know. That's dramatic irony, and you find it all the time. It can be engaging makes books interesting and movies interesting. It can be frustrating. You're just hoping that some other character somehow shows up and tells the truth to this man that you already know, but tells the truth to this man so that he doesn't make decisions that can in the end even be tragic. If only he knew what were really going on the way that you do. Dramatic irony. And I can't help but think perhaps this is a bit of imagination, but that angels sit in heaven and watch our lives with a very similar experience of dramatic irony. Angels who in the heavenly realms are quite fully aware of all the spiritual realities. They behold them with their eyes, so to speak. They know them to be true. They know the heavenly riches are in heaven. They know we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They know that salvation of the soul is the most essential thing for any human. Restoring of a right relationship with God through the death of Jesus Christ. They know the power and significance of His resurrection. They are aware of the whole story and they watch our lives and sometimes we're aware of that, <laughs> of the story. But many times we're like those main characters who know only half the story, only half the plot, and we wander about making odd decisions, at least from the angels' perspectives, and they are thinking if only someone would tell them the whole story. That's her brother. If only they knew. So, in Christian terms, the angels observe a young woman who begins to get ensnared in a relationship with a young man who is not a believer, and she is. But her heart is going away quickly in that direction, and she justifies it in her mind with thoughts of, I can fix him, I can change him, surely he'll come to Christ, maybe he has, he's not that serious about it, but maybe somewhere deep down there's something. And the angels are watching going, what are you doing? <laughs> no, if only you knew the misery at the end and the impropriety of being unequally yoked. If only you knew. So they sit at the edge of their seats, like at a football game, won't mention any of those, but they sit at the end of their seats, eager, hoping that someone will step in and tell the young woman, don't do that. Or again, there's a man 
He's looking at his bank account on his phone, and he's looking at his bills, and he's beginning to sink into a minor depression. And the angels in heaven think, if only someone would tell him, because they're sitting there next to piles of riches that belong to him. They are quite aware of a heavenly father who cares for birds and fishes and everything, and is caring for them, and they think, if only someone would tell him. We see the whole story and know he'll be fine. He'll be totally fine. In fact, he has more riches than anyone around him in Christ, if only he knew that. But that's what makes it dramatic, is that he usually doesn't. He doesn't realize it. He forgets it in the moment. And the angels only hope that he'll remember it. Even if we take a simple phrase, but a deep phrase, like in Christ, the way Paul uses that, or John in the New Testament, to be in Christ. If any one of us in this building were to fully grasp the significance of what it means to be in Christ, the way that angels do, our lives would be so significantly different on Wednesday afternoon. We think and speak and act in ways that probably make angels almost lose their minds. But the truth is that we don't have to live that way. That's why we're gathered right here, isn't it? To hear God's Word opened up to us. This is God speaking to us through His Word. I am going to be reading to you and teaching you things that most all of you already know. And yet John decides to summarize the end of this letter with, we know, we know, and we know. And he's going to say things he already wrote to us in this letter. Of course we know it. He already told it to us. But you see, there is, as we've seen, a difference between knowing and knowing. The angels know, and we usually know. And therefore, we need these realities to be set before us again and again. If for no one else's sake, then the poor angels who have to suffer through this soap opera of a life that they're watching for us. But, but really, for us. So let's look at this, 1 John chapter 5, as we come to the conclusion of everything we know or we ought to deeply know that's been shown to us in this letter. We're beginning in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Secondly, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And thirdly here, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, God the Father. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Three times, we know, we know, and we know. And you might be tempted to say, well, if we know it, what are we doing here on a Sunday morning knowing it again? <laughs> 
John already wrote these things to us in this letter. The three things he says we know, we know because of 1 John. We read them. We spent quite a bit of time talking about them. If John was only interested in us knowing these things as pieces of data stuck somewhere in the gray matter of your brain, then this would be irrelevant. Like I said, John is talking about a deep, true, what we could call an experiential or a transformative rather than merely a technical knowledge. We have to come away from the letter of 1 John not just knowing the data, but knowing in our experience, knowing in a way that affects you on Tuesday and Thursday and Friday at work and at home with your children while they are screaming, when you're with aging parents, when you're at the nursing home, every part of our life. This is a no that occurs in those moments and changes who you are. And therefore, it's fitting for John to come back around to these things and summarize really the whole letter for us with these three. Because we forget, because we do not fully realize these things that we know. So the goal today is simply for us to know the things that we already know. <laughs> and so it's repeated. And so what we're going to look at today under two headings is number one, what God wants you as a believer to know deeply walking out of this building is that you, whoever you are, genuinely have victory, victory over your sin, over hostilities, the hostile world. No, you are a victor, one who conquers, one who wins. That's true of you. I don't feel that way. That's why you're here. This is true. This is what the angels see. Number one. And number two, God wants you, as this letter ends, the very end of it, the focus turns completely to God himself, the true God, the genuine, real God who is there and his son, Jesus Christ. And God wants you to walk out of here with a certainty about God himself. So I want you to realize the victory that you have in God and then want you to realize everything that you have in God, God himself who is eternal life. So let's look under those two headings. May God help us to comprehend these things truly. So first we are talking about victory here. And notice this in verse 18, the first of the three parallel statements. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but... He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And how do we know that? Like I said, John's letter. Here's from chapter 3, if you remember. Quote, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And we saw that there in chapter 3, the point of John was family resemblance. That if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, in the work that he did upon the cross, and in his resurrection, then at that moment of faith, you also experience what we call conversion. You are born again. You were born the first time to be a person to be here. But if you're in Christ, you've been born anew in a spiritual sense. You were dead, you're alive. So, born again. To be born again means there is a change fundamentally in your nature. You look the same. 
before, the day before you came to Christ at a weekend conference or wherever it was, the day before you came to Christ and the day after you came to Christ, you look the same, but you are not the same. And what John told us in chapter 3 and here and elsewhere is that for a person in that condition, a genuine believer with a changed nature, there is now a family resemblance between you and your true heavenly Father. And one of the ways that that resemblance shows itself is that He is light, and therefore you are light. He is holy, and therefore in your life you begin to see progressively, not perfectly, but progressively, more and more holiness. You begin to love others. You begin to put off sin and put on righteousness. There is a family resemblance. That's what he said in chapter 3. That's why, chapter 3 and here, if someone has been born of God, they cannot keep on sinning. That doesn't mean you'll never sin again. And we are all proof of that. But it does mean that you don't have a lifestyle characterized primarily by sin. That's what your life was before you knew Christ. But once you come to know Christ, there's such a fundamental change that it simply will not be true of you. You will not keep on living fully, happily in sin. That's what he said here. Because God's seed abides in you, you can't do that. John, however, goes one step further in our text than he did in chapter 3. Chapter 3, you're born again, your nature changes, there's a family resemblance. But here, he says, but he who was born of God is also involved, will protect you from the evil one who wants you to sin. The evil one is Satan. His goal in this life is, more than anything else, to get you to sin. So sometimes we call him the tempter. And that is his goal. So we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, because that's what he wants you to do. Be tempted, sin. He did it to Jesus three times in the wilderness. He does it in our lives. However, that works out spiritually, but it happens. Satan wants you to sin, and Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil, which means to get the sin out of your life. It's a part of why he came into the world. It says, but he who was born of God protects you. That's another reason you can't just live a lifestyle completely full of sin, not only because your nature has been changed, but because the one born of God is protecting you from that. And who is the one born of God in this text? Even though the name is not given, I do believe that we're supposed to see Jesus here. If you have a King James Version, it says the one who, who is born of God protects himself, which would mean the believer is the one who was born of God. That is possible. I don't think that's what John is saying because notice he changed how he said it. No one who has been born of God, that's you. You have been. It happened in the past, and it relates to your present. You have been. And every time John says someone has been born of God, it's referring to you. But never, ever, anywhere else in the Bible, when he says it this way, the one who was born of God, it never does refer to a believer. It could. It could. But I think he changes from has been, you, to was looking back to Jesus, his incarnation, his virgin birth. He was born of God and the Virgin Mary came into the world. Jesus Christ is the one who protects us believers, which is another reason we cannot just continue walking in sin. 
Jesus Christ, Son of God, means that if you're a believer here, if you have been born of God, you have victory over sin. That's what John wants you to know. And one of the reasons is that here comes Satan like a wolf into your life, knowing your weaknesses better than you do, I assume, comes into your life with just the right temptations, gets the other person, I don't know how Satan works in people, okay, so don't hold me to this, but let's just say does something so that the other person says the snub that snubs you the most because he knows what will get you most frustrated. And the person does exactly that after the end of a long, hard day, and the devil knows it was a long, hard day, and trying to lead you into that temptation and then knock upon the head because Jesus, as your good shepherd, he doesn't have a staff for nothing. He is there to protect you from the evil one who wants you to sin. So it's not just you fighting against sin, fighting against temptation, although certainly you're involved in that. But what he says here is, we know this is true, that your good shepherd is always standing there in a spiritual sense as a shepherd does and watches for the wolf to come and smacks it with a staff to send him whimpering away into the woods. That's happening. The angels see that happening. You and I only see the snub. We have to accept by faith that there's more than just a snub happening. More than just some woman making eye contact too long with the married man. More than just whatever the particular temptation is. That Satan and those under him are at work, but Jesus protects us. In other words, Jesus by his staff, if you will, has given you victory over sin. It's the same thing that Paul told the Romans. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And you may say, well, if only you knew the sin in my life as a Christian, the particular habit that I've tried so hard to break, but there it is every day, crouching at the door, and its desire is for me, and it masters me over and over. No, no, no. Wrong language defeats you over and over in some sense. It does not master you. There's not a sin in this world that is master over you. You are free. You have victory over sin. All your sin. It doesn't mean we don't ever sin, but don't demean the power of Jesus Christ to protect you from the evil one. You sin because you want to sin. No one here who is a believer who has been born of God sins because they have to sin. You don't have to sin. You see how you need this reminder? Because this week, you sometimes feel like you have to sin. The language that we use reflects this, that sometimes we do regard ourselves more as victims of sin. And I guess in some ways, there is a victimhood. We live in a fallen world. We are tempted in particular ways. But at the end of the day, none of us are victims of sin. We use the language that we fell into sin. Isn't that the language that we use? And that's okay, okay? I'm not... There are some biblical passages that suggest falling in that way, but I think the way we use it is almost as if we were just living our lives quite intent on pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan stuck out his foot and we didn't see it in time and we fell right over it. Poor us. <laughs> no, not poor you. <laughs> you did that. You chose that. If you see yourself primarily just as a victim of sins, then this passage comes in and John says, no, 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 no. We know that if you've been born of God, 
You don't keep on sinning because he who was born of God is there protecting you to deliver you from the evil one. He's strong, but greater is he in you than he is in the world to protect you. We know that, and for us, we have to go on knowing that, reminding ourselves that this is true. Jesus intercedes in heaven for you, much as he did for his own apostle Peter. When Satan asked permission, could I have Peter and sift him like wheat? Jesus says, but Peter, I prayed for you. So when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. And that's exactly what happened. Peter did sin. He did fall prey to the wolf, if you will. But notice in our text, it says that the evil one does not touch him. Maybe it touch would be better translated as an overtake. It doesn't mean that Satan has no influence or sway in our lives. Not like he's over there, totally uninvolved, but he doesn't eat you. That's the point. He didn't consume Peter, though Peter wept bitterly over his sin and was crushed by it. He didn't consume him, and Satan doesn't consume any of God's people. He can't do that. So we are not victims of sin, we are victors over sin. And some of you probably feel like victors over sin because you've recently seen victory in your own life over sin patterns. But there are others who are here who I know you do not feel like a victor over sin because your sin patterns are seeing quite a bit of victory over you. Try as you might to be rid of them. Well, you remember what God had said to Cain before he killed his brother, he said, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And you might feel exactly like that. You don't want to gamble again, but it seems that sin is always crouching right at the door, just outside, and it wants you. And you walk that way, it will eat you. So you may feel that part of this passage, but remember what God commanded Cain immediately thereafter. But you must master it. Cain was of the evil one. That's what John told us. In the end, he didn't have the ability to master it because he's of the evil one. But you're not. You are of God. If you have been born of God, then when that command comes to you, you must master sin. It's telling you to do what is already true of you. In Christ, you already have victory over sin. It is a deposed monarch in your life. So, you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, go on putting it to death. You can do that. I can't do that. Liar. I'll call you out on that. You can. Not because of you, but because of the power of Christ, the power of your new nature. It can be done. It's not to say it's easy, and you understand that. It's not to say it's easy for any of us. You may be wondering right now, okay... You don't understand because I've got this particular sin and it's been in my life for years and years and years and I've tried every technique and every strategy and every step possible to overcome this sin, but it's stuck there. What do I do? What's the technique? Sorry to tell you, I'm only given about 40 minutes. So this isn't the sermon for me to give you all of the technique and this isn't the passage, but that doesn't negate what this passage is saying. Whatever the best techniques are, ask wise believers around you, read some good books, whatever the best specific techniques may be, you have to be convinced. You have to be able to say with this passage, I know what the angels see, which is whatever the techniques, I can overcome indwelling sin in my life. What I cannot do is go on sinning. That's what it says. 
I can progressively overcome sin. So that is the first. You have victory over sin. The victory goes beyond that. Notice that as we get to verse 19 here. It takes one step further, your victory. <clears throat> we know, second statement, that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here you have to sort of read between the lines a little bit. You may wonder why he adds those two things together. We are from God, and the world lies in the power of the evil one. Why is it important for us to know that? I think if we go back to chapter 4, we understand why he's pairing those things together. Back there, if you remember in verse 6, John was writing about himself and his apostolic colleagues, and he said, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, the scriptures. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. You remember that one of the saddest things that happened to the people who originally read this letter was that there was a group of people within their church who went out from their church and began believing and teaching a doctrinal heresy about Jesus that he had not really come in the flesh, something we would call Gnostic or proto-Gnostic, and we've talked about that. But they went out, and they looked back at their friends who stayed in the church as wrong. You're wrong. They no longer were no longer abiding in the teaching that John gave. They thought it was false, maybe naive, too simplistic, who knows. But John says it makes sense that there would be those who would go out and look back and not listen to the original teaching and think that you, yourselves, who remain, are very foolish, disagree. Well, why does that make sense? Well, because we are from God, but what about the world around us, including those false teachers? They are from the world, and the whole world lies right there in the power of the devil himself. And as you can imagine, the devil is not friendly to the gospel that we hold, or to us. It's like what John wrote in chapter 3, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Here's Satan. He's got the whole world in his hands in a limited sense. There he is, as he promised to Jesus. All of this has been given to my authority. I can give this to you because it's been given over to me. There he is, the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself with a dominance over the world system. And he is influencing everywhere like something putrid that's gone into every crevice of the world. And there on the world is this tiny little flock, those who are from God. And John is saying, are you persecuted? Do others hate you? Do you live in a time where Christianity and those who believe in the tenets of Christianity are marginalized or thought backwater people or quite foolish, even culturally speaking? Is that the consensus that's growing? Does most of Europe think that you are all caught up in some kind of idiocy, that you would believe that Scripture is not only true but inerrant, that it has no error in it? They think that is madness. You've abandoned all intellectual purity to hold to these kinds of things. The world is hostile when it comes to you. And John says, well, well listen, of course, we know 
that we're from God, but we also know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What did you expect? Put some little mouse in a cage full of snakes and see if they have a tea party, you know? That's what he's saying. No, you should expect there would be hostility. But even if there is hostility, we are from God. It doesn't feel that way all the time. It feels like things are crushing. Persecution intensifies. Hostility increases in the world against Christians. And you feel like you're isolated, perhaps at work, or at least culturally speaking, it will always be that way. But the way the angels see it is, you are from God. It's a bit like if you've read or watched J.R.R. Tolkien's masterful trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. When you get to the end of that work, there is a last desperate battle that takes place outside of Mordor, the center of all evil. It's right outside there, and it is these people battling against massive forces of the enemy in an attempt to distract great Lord Sauron from seeing the fact that his special little magic ring is in the hands of some hobbits who are going to throw it into a volcano and destroy it forever, thus destroying his power. Okay, that's the scene. But when you watch or read this, that last desperate battle taking place, they're surrounded. There's not very many of them fighting, and there are lots of bad guys all around them. And they will certainly be destroyed. It's moving that way. There's no way that they can defeat all of the enemies who have come before them. And they're not even certain that the hobbits who are supposed to throw the little ring into the fire and save them are still alive. But it's on the basis of that small hope that they are having this last desperate battle and they're shrinking and shrinking as they're being destroyed by the enemy. But you as the reader or the watcher, in some dramatic irony, you know what the characters don't. You know that the ring is making its way to the mountain. The enemy doesn't know that. Not even the good guys fully know that, though they hope it. But you are aware of that. And that is exactly how hostility toward Christians in this world works. The church is not a triumphant church here on earth. We don't overtake all political mechanisms and then rule in great might. Tried that. It's the Roman Catholic Church of medieval times. It did not go well. You can read history and find that out. That is not what the church is now. We are always the genuine believers in Christ, a small band that the world hates because the world lies in the power of the evil one. We are always considered foolish. Early, church, early Christians were called cannibals and were charged with all kinds of insane things because people hated them. And Jesus said, well, they called me Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, the devil himself. So what do you expect for yourself? An invitation with roses or something like that? Not at all. But what do we know? When your coworkers are hostile toward you and your views about sexuality or anything, when the world intensifies its pressures on believers, we take the perspective of angels. You might be there in that last desperate battle, and that's the way it's always looked. Secularism, falsehood, all kinds of things crushing to the church. Internal and external problems happening. It seems like the church will be put out like a weak candle. But that's only if you're looking down here in the valley. If you could see it from heaven's perspective, which you can, hence our text, you would know that you are from God. In the end, you win. You have a victory even over persecutors, persecution, hostility, because you are from God. So the first thing that 
the Lord wants us to be convinced of, no matter what you see, because we don't live by sight but by faith, is that we have a victory. When you drive home today in your vehicle going home, whether you feel incredibly encouraged, discouraged, thinking about political events or the news, thinking about the state of the church, thinking about yourself, your family, your friends, things good, things bad, whatever the case may be, when you're driving home, you have to be able for a moment to take all your feelings about it and just set them over here for a second and come back and go, what do I know? We know that we have victory over sin and we have victory over this hostile world. That leads us to the very end of 1 John and the very end of this passage, this whole letter. And he concludes by turning the focus to one other thing we know, and that is we know God himself. See that here in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came in the flesh, was incarnated. That's what it's saying. We know the Son of God has come from heaven, the Word, the eternal Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And he came, among other things, to give us an understanding so we may know him who is true. This is the beginning of John's gospel when he writes things like the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world to give us understanding. And no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he's made him known. How? By coming and giving us understanding. He's full of grace and truth. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, he said of himself, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Namely, who the true God is. And that is how you should see this when he says, Him who is true. It's primarily referring to the fact that the God we know is actually God. He's genuine and he's real. He's not counterfeit. That makes sense maybe a bit of that concluding passage that maybe surprised you in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We haven't been talking about idols this whole letter. <laughs> Where did that come from? Well, because you know the true God. And an idol at essence, whether he was referring to physical, literal idols maybe, or idols of the heart, Whatever it is, an idol is more than anything else. It is a counterfeit, false representation of God. It's a violation of the first two commandments in the Decalogue. It is believing in a false God. We're in the true God, so keep yourself from all false gods. Now, the end of verse 20 has been subject of a lot of controversy. But we don't have time to dig into the controversy, nor do we really need to. The controversy is, if you look at the end of the verse, he is the true God and eternal life. The whole question is when it says he, who's that? Because the most immediate person referenced before the he is his son, Jesus Christ. If that's who the he is, this is perhaps the clearest statement of the deity, the godhood of Jesus Christ in the whole New Testament. Because he would be saying, Jesus Christ, Jesus is the true God. That would be very remarkable. John could certainly write that. Maybe that is what he meant. It is immediately next to it. However, if you go back, 
one step further, he was talking mainly about the one true God, him who is true, that's the Father, and he could then be resuming that and say, well, he, the Father, we said he's true, him who is true, he's the true God and eternal life. You can take either of those views. You're not a heretic. Good people will disagree on that. Personally, I think he's referring to God the Father, but he could be referring to Jesus. In either case, Jesus is the true God. We know that. And eternal life. The Father and the Son are the source of eternal life for us. For that, that doesn't help us either. So the grammar goes either way. But that shouldn't distract us from the main thing that's being said here at the conclusion of this letter. And it is, brothers and sisters, whatever else is true or not true about you that greatly disappoints you, this is true. You know the true God. We're not following fables, myths, things made up in the ancient world. You know the true God, and you know him in such a personal way that he himself can be called eternal life. Because Jesus said, this is eternal life, knowing God. You know God personally. Angels are watching this morning, and there you are, people who know God, and they're on the edge of their seats because all around you in this world are idols. False counterfeits promising you happiness, joy, and fulfillment if you will bow the knee and give your heart the substance of your life to something else, whether it be something good like work or family, or if it's something sinful like an evil habit or addiction. Whatever it is, those are the idols around you. And all of them say, behold, I am the Lord your God. Do me reverence. So John here says, don't do that. Angels, choruses of angels on the edge of their seats say, don't do that. What are you doing? You know the true God and he is eternal life and you are in him who is true and you're in his son Jesus Christ. This has been the summary of the whole letter of 1 John and if you receive nothing else from this sermon series, I hope this is what you take away with you. That if you confess the true Jesus Christ as he's revealed in scripture, if you confess him and know him, then you have God. And if you have God, you're done with your havings. There's nothing further for you to have. So when the world comes, which lies in the power of the devil himself, and he offers to you all sorts of counterfeits, all sorts of idols, it will be offered to you this week, I promise you. It will be set before you. Sin will be put there. Worship me, bow the knee, and all these things will be yours. The angels are on the edge of their seats. They're watching and they want to know if you are going to realize the story that you're a part of and if you are going to obey this final concluding appeal. Little children, you have God. So, keep yourselves from idols.